0: chronic illness therapist podcast. This is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. I'm just kind of looking to learn the basics of acceptance work. Um, What does it mean, and what skills can help you kind of lean into acceptance? You know, we talk a lot about acceptance on this podcast and what it is and what it isn't, so I won't repeat that all here. But if you'd like to sign up for this membership, um, I'm still kind of figuring out exactly what it's going to entail, but I know it will at least have videos, training videos, in um, a transcription with each video, uh, as well as like some worksheets when applicable. Uh, and eventually the goal is to have a community where you know people can chat with each other and kind of like a Facebook group, but I don't think it'll be on Facebook. I think it'll be um, on a different platform so we will i'll keep you updated on that uh, if you're interested in learning more about that as i learn more about it and exactly you know what it's going to be um then sign up for the email list and i'll the link will be in the show notes and uh, yeah i won't spam you with with lots of emails but just updates about what's going on in the membership and and what it all entails so thanks Matthew Morris was born in 1962 and grew up in suburban St. Louis, Missouri in Tacoma, Washington. He spent a lot of his teenage years cycling on the open roads of Washington state. And as an undergrad, he studied philosophy and some ancient Greek at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. From 1986 to 1987, he studied poetry under Allen Ginsberg, Robert Creeley, Philip Wallen, Clark Coolidge, and the disembodied spirits of Jack Kerouac and Ted Berrigan at Naropa University. Matthew has a deep love of the arts and is an accomplished amateur folk poet. Since 1988, he's been engaged in Tibetan Buddhist psychology and the practices of the body, speech and mind. So these deeply inform his therapeutic view. But he's also partial to psychodynamic exploration, existential psychology and even CBT. Matthew has lived in New York City since 1994 and he worked in the magazine and luxury good industry for about 20 years. He's been married for 27 and has two adult daughters. In 2015, he trained as an interfaith chaplain at Mount Sinai Hospital, and then he worked for nearly six years in end-of-life care at Calvary Home Hospice. In 2016, he volunteered as a test subject for a research study at Johns Hopkins University on the effects of psilocybin on long-term meditators. He picked up a master's degree in counseling from Fordham University and is now a licensed mental health counselor in the state of New York. He has a private psychotherapy practice based in New York City and, of course, Zoom. I would love to know a little bit about you and your practice you're in New York city. Um, how long you've been practicing and Tad, just tell me a little bit about your work. Oh, thank
1: you, destiny. I, um, I just started a private practice here in Manhattan, but prior to this, uh, which I I just opened this practice a month ago, I'm in union square in Manhattan. I have an office. I'm old school. I still like to see people in the, in the, in, in three dimensions. And, um, so, I've, so I'm starting, I'm building a practice, and prior to this, I worked in hospice care, um, and I worked, first I started as a chaplain, I was a trained uh, chaplain, Buddhist chaplain, but interfaith chaplain, and then from there, I went to school and got a degree in counseling and passed and did my exams and whatnot. So I've worked on both sides of death, both uh, before the death and after the death, uh, so um with the grieving family. Now, so, and I have had a lot of experience also with chronic illnesses, cause I did my training at Mount Sinai Hospital. So uh, I was actually um, on the gastrointestinal unit. Um, so I spent a lot of time with uh, various transplant people as well as with uh, Crohn's and irritable bowel syndrome. And then a lot of um, some sickle cellers, sickle cell anemia people. Uh, so I have, I've had a range of experiences and, uh, yeah, yeah. that's me. That's yeah. me. that's Amazing. that's my practice. That's my practice.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Can you tell me when you were working in hosp- hospice and seeing chronic illness, is there a theme you came across with the particular patients you were talking with, um, any kind of theme, whether that was, uh. About their belief systems. Sometimes, um, you know, when we're on death's bed, we start to think more about these things. Or, um, what were some of the things that just came up uh, during that time for you?
1: Well, are you referring to chronic illness or terminal illness?
0: That's a good question. Um, do you can you speak to both, or is there one one over the other? That
1: I can I can speak to both. They are they are related. I think that um, any illness, if it's serious enough. Um, if it's intense enough or has long duration it wakes us up to the fact that we're that we're mortal and human that we're fragile vulnerable that um, impermanent that, that this body isn't so reliable maybe not this world sadly sometimes our personal interpersonal relationships aren't reliable either and um, so it really depended on the person I met and where they were in the trajectory of their diagnosis uh, I met you know, I met people who were then worked with people who were young, and they had to nineteen years old, and they had to leave college because they had their first Crohn's flare up, and and their parents were there, thank God, to help them, and um, and then I've also worked with people who've who've who had the illness all their lives or for decades, and have very sophisticated coping mechanisms. So what 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 you discover is that people um. Mature and develop, hopefully through with support of therapists and and uh, and family and friends that they can develop uh, ways of coping with their challenge.
0: That makes perfect sense. Um, what what were some of the coping mechanisms that you either saw to be most powerful or maybe the most um, prevalent?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I. I I have to say, you know, people do get spiritual when they get older or near death. And let's face it, um, chronic illness comes to most of us if we're lucky enough to make it to 70. I'm 60 right now, so I'm fine. You know, the mild eczema that I control with the right <laughs> skin care, but, but I don't, I, I've been very blessed, very fortunate. Um and uh, I mean, my I, i'm I'm what's called a um second degree relative first degree relative of of chronic illnesses. My mother had juvenile adult onset juvenile diabetes and uh, comorbid persistent depressive disorder, and uh, even more strangely, Huntington's disease runs in my family. So I've been around it a lot. but so what a lot of people, you know, there are no there's that joke. there are no atheists in the foxhole. but reality there are sometimes atheists in the foxhole and they can they can handle it and weather their their illness and eventual dying process with grace and dignity it's entirely possible i'm not of that elk I make that leap of faith i I joke about it I call it my um positive self hallucination you know because i I'm, I'm educated i'm I'm able to be skeptical but, uh, but yeah, i find it very useful to have a um to have a, a sense of transcendence after this life to love both this life and the life hereafter in my form of in my buddhism we have future lives past lives i don't have any true true insight into that but i um i do find it a marvelous coping mechanism in a way of expanding things so that i can deal with the wild unfairness of life And But I've seen many, so that's a general, it is a tendency. People ask the big questions. They do a life review. They go back to who gave them the most love in this life and who they've given a lot of love to. They meditate on love and gratitude. And so they can love both this life and the next life so they can have peace of mind. Maybe they they can, uh, sometimes they do become more spiritual, but I've seen very few deathbed conversions to be honest with you and and, then although there i'm sure there are a lot of conversions within the chronic illness trajectory especially if people have it when they're young you know it can because it's a coping it's spiritual coping mechanism
0: yeah it's interesting i think there's also maybe a lot of deconversion or conversion to and from growing up religious to sometimes or or spiritual usually well usually Mm. you grow up with a a religion right and then um a lot of times maybe it's just the age you know 20 30 mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. not yet asking i think those big big questions i think you're more so asking the why questions why did this happen instead of how mm-hmm. um, which kind of i think can lead to some of the more deconstruction of faith and mm-hmm. spirituality mm-hmm. and then you start to i think as you get older ask more of those i like what you said like people on their they're they're asking these um these questions, these big life questions and trying to just kind of reflect and make meaning and sense of it all.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Most people, when they're young, there's are it's about, you know, to be Darwinian, it's survival and reproduction or it's money and sex, you know, and I don't know which order it's, you know, whether we're conscious of it or not, it is an evolutionary drive that defines us as animals and people. And, um, then, as we get older, when we face our mortality, and we see our other friends, see enough of our other friends die, or maybe if we've been hurt by another, other losses such as a, a out of the blue betrayal or divorce, or you know, or something horrifically unfair, but then we ask, "What's it all about?" And um, some people go through a phase of what we call spiritual struggle, where they ask God or the infinite. Uh, uh, why me, you know, why this, you know, and in some, that's a big feature in, um, in, in, in Judaism, people argue with God in Judaism, uh, but uh, yeah, and it can be, it can be, that's a natural phase to go through that, and I've worked with people through that, and I basically just uh, meet them where they're at, you know, I just, that that's where they are.
0: Yeah, do people tend to find you because they are already using spirituality as a coping mechanism and they're seeking somebody who can help them hone that or would you say that it's maybe a a mix of people that come to see you
1: oh well it's a it's a bit of a mix i'm you know i was trained all chaplains train as interfaith chaplains and then they identify as one thing or another it's sad but true they become oh i'm a catholic chaplain or i'm a protestant or i'm buddhist so I always got the strange people that were spiritual, but not religious, uh, lovely people. I don't mean, I mean, <laughs> I got the uh, wonderful creative people. And here in New York, some of them are the most fascinating people, a lot of them are artists and, uh, you know, they've had um, interesting careers and they're they're open and creative. They're not into um, um, absorbing or following the dogma. But what as you did bring up earlier, um, there are a lot of people who return to their ancestral their their roots and so if if i meet someone who went to catholic school when they were young and maybe now they're 70 and dying of cancer and they've had a year of they were baby boomers they they experimented with psychedelics and maybe played around with buddhism hinduism traveled to india who knows but when they get old they do go back they do go back to those um you know the, those ancestral roots it's a combination of the two depends on the person but yeah but i had very few real buddhists towards the very end but i did have some that were quite remarkable and uh, so i could deeply connect with them but also i was raised episcopalian so i would connect with my Episcopalian my christians and catholics like episcopalians so i was fortunate
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: and uh, and then I love the arts and the meaning making that's involved in in the arts. And and I think uh, um, I always lo- I always love to ask my um, twelve step clients, patients, you know, what their idea of what their higher power is. And I always it's so so amazing to see the diversity of people's conceptions of uh, that which cannot be conceived. You know, it's uh,
0: oh you know, yeah, it it cre- yeah. requires creativity, it requires art to even yeah think about that question.
1: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I had one beautiful gentleman once he was dying and he said that, uh, for me, heaven is the voice of Ella Fitzgerald in the air. And that, and he, That's that was, wonderful. he was, and he was sticking with that.
0: Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. Can you maybe speak a little bit more to what it even means to go back to someone's roots? I know that sounds could sound really simple, but Um, for someone who's never even thought about that before what might that start to look like for someone
1: for someone who never oh they have roots but they've um, yeah
0: they haven't thought about their ancestors or what what practices or traditions you know they kind of and -hmm. so yeah what would that look like if someone were curious about that like what does that mean
1: well, uh it's, how old are we as this this mm. ideal this client we're thinking of?
0: Maybe 25 to 35. So they're mm-hmm. younger, they're kind of thinking about this question for the first time. Um,
1: and they have a they have a chronic illness and they're starting to look back at their the religion that that maybe did some harm to them and now they're looking at it. It and, It could
0: even it could be that or I'm even thinking when I'm thinking of ancestral healing and and, and um Mm -hmm. you know, thinking back to even our, our country obviously was founded on like a a Protestant um, uh, founding. Um, But if you think Mm -hmm. back even further, sometimes we get into pagan roots and um, old Celtic kind of do you, is that Mm -hmm. kind of how far back you go sometimes when you're, when you're talking about this?
1: Sure. Yeah. It depends on the person and what they're keyed into There's some, for some people, obviously they're the diagnosis diagnosis of a chronic illness uh, uh, that may not be terminal at all for five decades is the beginning of the spiritual um, exploration, shall we say. And uh, some people go back to, we say, Celtic roots, or I have some weird connection with Tibetan Buddhism. I don't know why. (laughs) I met some teachers. I like the Dharma. The teachings uh, stuck with me. Uh, But I love my... um, Episcopalian roots—they're beautiful. The majesty of the language and uh, the Book of Common Prayer is like reading 17th-century poetry. You know, there's a reason why—why why John Donne and Robert Herrick and Henry vaughn all these old British poets—and via uh, here in America, yeah, we have a lot of creative thinking religiously, spiritually. We always have. People have come here for freedom or utopia, one sort or another, or also just to make a living and do better and survive sometimes, obviously, depending on the family. So people go back to their roots. I think more now than ever, I think people are into ancestry DNA and 23andMe and they're looking at this and (laughs) if you find out you're 20% Scottish and you didn't know it, all of a sudden you're interested in watching Outlander or things Celtic, you know? It's true.
0: It's (laughs) true. Yeah. Um, Which you know, can be a privilege in and of itself, just knowing that certain um, populations don't have uh, access to their roots. And I just want to kind of verbalize that and have an understanding of the fact that some of us, um, yeah, that you may not have as clear of a path um, to kind of looking back at 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 your ancestors, especially if you came here in the slave trade. Um, oh
1: yeah, well the, the well the African American community—they're obviously some of the most spiritually uh, observant people. I mean, the gospel tradition is uh, yeah. huge. That's uh, the it's extremely deep, and um, people wonder, oh, why aren't there more uh, more Black people doing Buddhism? You know, and and it's like because they don't need it. They have a community. <laughs> They've got their grandmother their cousins their family if it's just it's right there and you know in the in the in the neighborhood you know the the authentic full-bodied you know gospel tradition it's a beautiful thing
0: yeah yeah and I think I like what you you kind of brought up earlier um you asked the question clarifying question around maybe if I was bringing up maybe harm that has been done by religion um and while i wasn't i wasn't going there at the time i think it's also a good place to talk about like when you're going back to your roots and trying to look at you know healing and and when we say healing we're not talking about curing some chronic condition we're just talking about healing actually how would you just how would you define that word healing healing yeah
1: oh wow! well there are many degrees of healing there's healing on the bio the psycho the social and the uh Spiritual levels you know and um obviously I'm interested largely in the uh the spiritual and the psycho uh healing but um you need all those dimensions to work together really you, you need your you need your interpersonal social community and you need your you know you should i mean i'm 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 very wary of the medical system but i i i would say go get go get a checkup and then we'll it's important you know and yeah. do what modern science can do and, and, and don't believe everything they say and don't, don't get too uh, wrapped up in, uh, sometimes people get talked into uh, these, uh, into uh, being part of a, a subject in a test and that, that they get harmed by that and that's sad. To see. Uh, but healing on a spiritual level, that is the question. What is this internal healing that can happen that can radiate outwards, you know, this healing within this spiritual, this um, finding the love within, which can also be through psychotherapy, through secular psychotherapy is a very, uh, these are real things. And um, so I define it as a sense of um, well-being, openness, freedom, associated with warmth and luminosity, radiating compassion, being kind to yourself and others relaxed, yeah. sense of humor yeah.
0: <laughs> the sense of humor yeah that's a good one <laughs> yeah. yeah being able to um have a have a an air of lightness while you're carrying some really heavy stuff
1: yeah yeah and I, I uh, you know I don't suffer from um from uh, chronic illness you know more than I do um actually so but I imagine it can be really tough when it it hurts to laugh for example yeah. or yeah, you know, or you know or just or you can't breathe properly and the effect breath has on our on our on our being is very real I'm a very somatic person so yeah
0: yes yeah that's that's my mo- my modality of choice somatic experiencing um and and acceptance and commitment therapy so mm-hmm. I bring somatics a lot into therapy and Even so, yeah, there is, you're right. Like there could be a physical hurt with laughing, but also sometimes it's an emotional hurt. Feels like Mm. if you're, if you're laughing while you're in this much pain, then it feels either invalidating or it feels like, um, you know, even like getting your hopes up that things are okay. And then they're not. And I think again, the spiritual aspect helps you learn to ride those waves, the ups and downs so that you're not just expecting, because I think the problem comes when you know, like if you're feeling let down by the fact that you're laughing now and you might not be laughing tomorrow, then that to me is a spiritual conversation. We get into the concepts of impermanence and mm-hmm. all of that yeah,
1: yeah well we, in in Buddhism, we say it's be be careful of not getting too caught up in hopes and fears, mm. and, you know just because you're feeling better today doesn't mean going to be happening tomorrow or the day after it's um it's all about and that's where presence comes in you know presence and uh, but these are empty words when someone's really suffering um sometimes all you can do is be with them hold their hand you know Yeah. yeah yeah
0: yeah and another thing that i was curious about um when i was reading through um is psychedelic therapy do you practice with psychedelics in your um, practice or is that just something yeah can you tell me your relation to that
1: oh psychedelics yes um i i don't do it in my practice i i am a the only one that's legal in fact it's not really a psychedelic is ketamine which you're probably aware of um Ketamine's considered a dissociative. Uh, so in that sense, it's close to a religious experience because we could say that the spiritual state is a little dissociative. It's uh an, an expanse. Now then maybe that's a misuse of words, but there's some overlap there. And that's that's that internal spiritual healing that 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 expanse one can have uh, through spiritual practice, through ketamine. I, I haven't done ketamine much, but my main experience is with um. I was part of a study at Johns Hopkins University in 2016. So I worked with um, Roland Griffiths and, and Mary uh, Casamano. They're they're big. you will see them in all the psychedelic literature that's out there. Michael Pollan spent a lot of time with them. And, um, and so I was down there. They were doing a, lo- a study of long-term meditators to see what would happen if they took uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms. Um, and uh the idea was that and it's pretty much true since i became a, a buddhist serious practitioner i I'd, I'd stopped doing psychedelics since i was 25 or 6 25. you know when i was in college i did experiment with psychedelics i'm of the philosophical um artistic bent and so I, I i was curious and uh so yeah i think that um it's a big thing right now psychedelics uh for terminal illness it's used for uh, um obviously it's been MDMA has been used for couples counseling and uh, and psilocybins used for working with addictions and you know but it's 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 still not legal so um what can i say i'm not i'm I'm not an expert on it but i'm i'm very i try to stay up on it to a degree um, I think it could be useful for the right clients and the right setting you it, what a lot of people don't understand is that psychedelic therapy involves a long-term psychotherapy before you take the uh, substance with your uh, counselor, with your therapist. Yes. Um, so you've had, you've had uh, weeks to, uh, they first you've been screened. If you know, you're a, it's not, you're, it's not appropriate if you have a history of schizophrenia and other illnesses, or if you've had any recent trauma and if you've been screened and uh, they may screen you if you have chronic uh, chronic illness. I I would think it would wouldn't be good for a chronic illness. Maybe the right dosage would, and uh, then they do then you do it with the two therapists, one male and one female. <laughs> and so it's uh it's an interesting exploration, but it helps people cut through fear of death, terminal fear. So and other people can learn to cut through anxiety or or depression, but. Yeah, I don't know what maybe and maybe with, um, I would think with chronic illness, my gut would tell me that microdosing psilocybin might be useful in terms of, uh, but these things are more important as having a spiritual practice or a somatic practice or like your ACT practice, something that you do, something to hang it on. You're not just, uh,
0: yeah, it's not a magic cure, a pill, you know, it's not a thing that just takes your anxiety away. It's- it's a part but, of a practice,
1: right? It's a little boost, and it's a little inspiring, and it gives you a a little extra energy. It's like drinking a lot of coffee, you know, or or I guess like Adderall. I've never. <laughs> I'm not so. I'm I'm sixty years old, so there's a whole. You're up on a whole new generation of things that uh, for the future that'll be interesting to, to see. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is very interesting, but I like that you gave the the caveat of this is, you know, when you're thinking about psychedelics, it really is uh, something that you, you need to be doing work before you dive into that therapeutic work, whether that is a spiritual practice with a spiritual mentor or therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that too, you know, spiritual practice, I think, and I don't know generationally, like where this changed or when, or if it's always been this way, but We're just we're so hyper independent in this country, Um, so I think I know indigenous cultures. There was always a there was always a um, a head of the the spiritual their spiritual practice, whether it was it was the you know a Christian pastor or um, you know again in indigenous cultures um, there was someone who was heading the spiritual practices in the community, and I don't think we really have. A strong sense of that anymore. It doesn't feel well, like there's. It feels like this is all work you do on your own. I'm curious what you think about that.
1: Oh uh, yeah, it's less communal. Yeah, well, we do have our modern day shamans in the form of certain therapists and and certain priests. I do I do believe that um, wounded healers, which is basically what a shaman is, and uh, they have their rattle in their you know and their. and their their mantric sounds you know their vibrational energies um but but a lot of it is the presence and the the community having faith and uh but it is true in any traditional most traditional societies there's a tight uh communal healing they get the support of everyone Uh, that's a great weakness in our culture another great weakness in our culture is um Christianity, uh, the Judeo-Christian, let's say, all the is tradi- the Judeo-Christian tradition is very disembodied. So we're coming, and we don't that this whole mind-body split. As uh, you know, I'm sixty years old. So when I was your age, you know, you were considered kind of new agey or weird to talk about the the mind-body connection through the medium of the breath. You know, body, speech, mind, breath, uh, and now that's normalized. And in terms of uh, communities people find their tribes as they say in your generation I think um and and you know that so I think there's I always have hope for um humans to find their communities in, in their own way I hope people are are getting back together as humans
0: I think it's you know for those of us with a chronic illness it is so hard because COVID can be so detrimental to um somebody with it can be detrimental to anyone There were perfectly healthy people that that died in this in this era, but, um, I have lots of clients yeah. still struggling with the reopening and, and connecting with, with folks because of the potential for harm, um, that can come mm-hmm. to them because of what, what their body is dealing with already. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I had a and- close friend who had celiac disease who, uh, had to stay home. She was a therapist and, and they fired her. Can you believe oh. that? Cause oh. she wouldn't go into the office. It was, I mean, she wanted to work from home with the clients and
0: Yeah. I know it. Yeah. it's, I've, I think that's less common here in Atlanta, um, but anywhere outside of Atlanta t- that I've, I can see that happening very easily. Um, but it is really sad, especially when, it, I mean, I think part of it too is insurance companies deciding we're no longer paying for telehealth and whatnot. And, um, mm-hmm. that, that definitely, yeah. you know, it's the systems, this is bad. It's systems, right? Yeah, you put yeah. something like an insurance regulations, and then all of a sudden you can't do your job if you're not coming into the office, and it's just sad.
1: Because it is, sad. it is sad. It is sad. And the uh, the pandemic. I hope it's over. I like to think it's over, but maybe I delude myself. I uh, I have hopes and fears. I have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. I yeah. I as well. Um, yeah. There was another question that came to mind as we were talking about. You mentioned something around, um, it's more commonplace now to be talking about the mind body connection. And I, I think it is more commonplace. People are starting to understand it. And I, I do, I will take your hope for the future and that hopefully we can integrate it better because right now, a lot of times it feels like a a conversation that's being had, but then again, through insurance mandates or, um, just people doing things the way they have always done them for the last 10 15 years like they might be talking the talk but there isn't this real integration between the mind and body and we get into therapy and it's it's still just how do you change your thoughts how do you change your thoughts how do you change your thoughts
1: oh is it, yeah yeah the cognitive uh, um angle well the, you know there are things like cognitive therapy with slogans mind training slogans we call them in in, in Tibetan buddhism lojong mind training and mm-hmm. um the thing is there that those slogans are integrated with uh the teachings as a whole it's not just some isolated watch your brain it's it's integrated with uh you know your your sense of absolute and relative truth it's integrated with all of your uh your 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 highest ideals you know it's not just um tracking the brain and and but yeah, we do. You know, that's what I like about my Buddhist practices. It has practices of the body, the speech, and the mind. So it does have the cognitive practices, but it also has the the mantra and the breath work and the physical postures and uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's. I think I, I. I don't know. I, from what I can tell, I, you know more about this than I do. But I, but, but I imagine um, ACT and DBT and. Some of the other, um, some of these other modal mode um, intervention modalities might involve the body more, right? But-
0: I think so. I think that's kind of where I was getting at though earlier is that in practice, I think there's still a large disconnect between the mind and body, even when we're talking about it. And I think it's because people have done exactly mm-hmm. what you kind of just described, where you take this one piece out of. A spiritual practice and you say oh this is an antidote or this is the cure to anxiety to depression and you know, now we're gonna kind of spin off that and and then recreate this whole new
1: yeah 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 i mean right i mean <laughs> evidence-based I, I a lot of evidence-based practices have to are, are are questionable because they have to find the ideal uh people to use as subjects who have a one illness and then you have to home in on one uh, uh, one treatment uh, modality so it's all very questionable i i i, I, I think i psychotherapy is more of an art than a science and uh, all the, uh,
0: I think it should all, be <laughs>
1: <laughs> although i'm glad that, um, that, that I, but i think that some of these things have helped people ACT and DBT and uh, um ifs i suppose i'm in and uh, mbsr the only one i've done of those four is mbsr really and Mm -hmm. uh i found it i I found it very kind of more beginning level uh it's about stress reduction it's more secular and um yeah but people go from there and then they they might go to a meditation retreat and then read more buddhist books and go more deeply into it but it's very um entry-level stuff you know.
0: I think that's a good way to put it because everybody needs to enter somewhere, right? And so if that is our entry level, especially again, like in America, we don't have really a strong, even though we have Protestant roots and and there's a strong spirituality, like, you know, there's pieces of of spirituality. There's also this kind of hyper independence. So we don't really have this strong communal sense of of community. Um, And I think that... um, you got to start somewhere. So, you know, there's this entry level, whether that's CBT or ACT or um, DBT, if that gets you into a practice and then it evolves from there, then mm-hmm. that's all, you know, that's all we can ask for. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then you can find your community and further refine your tribe and find a nice group of people. That's not too culty. <laughs> where, <laughs> Definitely. You know, where, it's Yeah.
0: Yeah. how can you speak a little bit to like community it sounds like so maybe even for for you where you found your community and your spirituality um can you speak a little bit to that just finding community
1: Ah, uh, finding community well i'm uh i'm a married man of 27 years and i have two uh adult daughters 21 and 24 so that's kind of the center of my community and then i belong to uh, um a uh, I, I wonderful poetry writing group on Sundays. That's one part of my tribe, because um, I have these overlapping interests of poetry and spirituality and and uh, psychotherapy. So uh, spiritually, I'm, I, I've I've always been more of a um, independent yogi than than a real belong to the sangha, what we call the sangha uh, person. But now, as I get older, I, I'm I'm more uh, less defensive and more relaxed, and want to just share or not share my my experiences um, with all kinds of people. And uh, and so, yeah, I've, I've I've taken some initial steps steps to uh, joining the community of Tibetan Buddhists out in Colorado. Zigar Kondrol Rinpoche, I like his work, um, and then Nyingma Nyingma tradition, Nyingmapa tradition, and. Is there from the lineage of a teacher named Dolgo Dingo Kensei Rinpoche. He was a died in 91 or so. So I had I had I had guru I had gurus. And so therefore, yeah, there's communal things around that. And it's I wouldn't say it's a cult, but it was it's cult like to our eyes. It's very foreign, uh, not and, and my uh, my humble working class uh, grandparents weren't so happy when I got involved in that. They're old time Methodists and uh-huh. I know. I know you're in, uh, you're in Atlanta. So you, you have a lot of that, um, tradition, the Bible belt and, um, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, Everyone's community is a little different and, uh, yeah. You know, I did. yeah. Sometimes I joined the Episcopal church recently. I went through a phase where I was involved in my local Episcopal church and I was a, um, a Eucharistic minister and I loved it. It was wonderful. I got back in with my roots and, the. Uh, you know, the cadence and the language and the majesty of the, uh, Episcopal church.
0: Yeah. 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 My introduction to, um, really spirituality and, and really just mindfulness in general was Thich Han, And that's really the foundation. I mean, I had a professor in undergrad who, like, just nailed act into our head and um this was before you know way before I could practice but um it was between you know acceptance and commitment therapy and the because it has very buddhist undertones um Mm -hmm. and then yeah I read a lot of Thich Nhat Hanh uh and that Mm. was kind of my yeah my entryway if you will
1: yeah, he's an amazing crossover figure in that you know close to uh, Martin Luther King back in the 60s. So he has that, that social justice side to him and mm-hmm. anti-war. And then he has that, he wrote, he's written books about Christianity also and that overlap. And uh, he's been a real, a real role model. I actually was trained as a chaplain by a rabbi who'd read all of, of Thich Nhat Hanh. that was his. <laughs> yeah. His, yeah. And, um, and then I've worked with some people in the hospice industry that are, that are part of his community
0: yeah yeah that's yeah. beautiful is there anything else that comes to mind today um just about spirituality and kind of dealing with suffering i know you know chronic illness not necessarily it's just the suffering of life um which chronic illness definitely brings along with it so mm-hmm. any kind of thoughts you would want to leave people with around suffering and spirituality
1: well i'd, I'd say that's exactly right i think um People who suffer from chronic illness are more in tune with the reality of, of suffering. And, you know, we, we talk about the four marks of existence in Buddhism, birth, old age, sickness, and death. I mean, old age, sickness, and death will come to all of us. And so um, I know it's overused that, that these um, people with chronic illnesses, that's also their superpower, but it's often true, you know, people learn by learning to cope I think what they learn to do is um, what, I, what I've what i seen over and over again is people not just wanting to feel better themselves, but they get better themselves through uh, prayer, if you want to call it, for other people, for dead people they've known that have given love to them and prayer for other people. They're attuned to um, the heartbreak in the Ukraine, for example, um, mm. so there's a certain um, Tender, um, sad beauty to it all, and uh, and uh, and and so I think that there are um, time and again I noticed that the people with chronic illnesses were my teachers. I'd go in there and I ended up uh, learning more from them, you know, than they did from me. Absolutely. So, so that's about it. That's a, these are these are commonplace things, but it's worth always tuning into them, right? Because we get busy. Yeah. We cover things up. We get busy making a living, Christmas, shopping, Thanksgiving, Michigas, craziness, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: the, the traffic and noise. And yeah, we can lose touch with what really matters.
0: Yeah, that's really what my work is all about, is finding ways to have touch points to the things that matter um, while living mm-hmm. with a chronic illness, because it does add just one more thing that overtakes your mind and distracts you from what matters in your life. So. yeah
1: yeah yeah Your, you know the, you're the the people you love and your own love within and finding that tuning into that yeah yeah
0: great well i really appreciate you being here and talking to me okay it well was great a pleasure. Thank,
1: thank you and keep up the good work and may it um benefit many people both therapists and uh and clients i
0: okay? hope so i hope so Perfect. thanks matt
1: all right bye now talk to
0: you later Bye bye. If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better absorb the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.